Good evening, everyone. Hey, quick question. So we, we are starting tonight. You, you should have a packet from page 21. You should have pages 21 down to 40. 21 to 40. So you, you were given a packet at the end of last week, and then there's more notes, just this, like five pages right up here on the piano. Does anybody not have page 21 in that set? So we can see how many sets we need. Two, three, four. Okay, raise it high like you mean it. All right, thank you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So Amy's going to hand some of those out and then may need to print. Now 10, whatever number I said. Eight, 10. Okay, is anybody still in need of notes? Who is not squared away? Okay, great. Hey, uh, thanks for coming out this evening. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump right in. So Olivia, you've got a mic. Where's the second one? Isaac, thank you very much, you guys. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you also for your grace to us through our great-grandfathers in the faith who defended what your Bible teaches. They thought carefully and spent their lifetimes thinking about your word and defended it against strange teachings, misguided teachings, and false teachings that would seek to change what your word says into something different. Lord, we know that ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has sought to distort your word and deny it. And he still is active doing the same things today. From a different vantage point, Lord, we all are in the middle of our sanctification. We're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we, with humility, confess that we need to be taught. We need to be taught the truth to be protected from error. We need your spirit to help us think well and wisely and more. So would you assist us in doing that as we pull back these curtains and look far back, almost 2,000 years in church history to understand the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So Lord, please help us, we pray this evening. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I wanna start with Matthew 16. Oh, and by the way, one, one quick note. One quick note is uh, we now have child care for all ages upstairs there's a kids program so if you know people who aren't able to make it because of child care issues uh, please let them know that myelin corn is upstairs with some others doing that so just you can help spread that word matthew 16 verses 13 and following now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. One way that we can frame church history is the question, who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say Jesus is? Is he somebody that we can invent on our own? Is he, or do we take him at his word? Do we mine the scriptures to think carefully and fit the scriptures together to understand what they say? Well, that's as I prayed what we're doing in this class. This class, Credo, Saints, Sinners, and the Battle for Salvation in the Early Church, we're exploring that question of how, once the Bible was finished being written, and the gospel began to spread, as Satan works, he also spreads distortion. And some people added distortion intentionally because they hated Jesus. And other people added distortion, differences, untruths, lies, unintentionally because they were trying to understand the Bible and misunderstood it. But what makes a heretic a heretic and heresy heresy is you can believe something or teach something but when someone knows the truth and, and lovingly confronts you or helps you understand your error and then you refuse to repent of your error and agree with scripture, then you're officially a heretic uh, or believe heresies. And so we've been traveling through the first almost 200 years of church history and we finished briefly last time, we're in this interlude. So we've looked at various false teachings that have risen up and then how the church has addressed those false teachings. And so we are on page 21. We're actually on page, what page is this? 23. And we're looking at some snapshots before we get to the next two major controversies of the early church, which are going to help us understand Jesus all the more. And where we left off last time, we looked last time on page 22 at this letter from Pliny the Younger, to, emperor, to an emperor about what to do with atheist Christians because Christians were largely persecuted to varying degrees for the first 300 years of the church. Well, in the middle of page 23, this is a modern paraphrase and it's also, it's, it's a very long document. So this is a summary of the document. And it was either written around 166 or 198, somewhere around then. But this is a fictitious ancient document written by a Christian apologist. Remember the word apologist means defense of the faith, not saying that you're sorry for being a Christian. And this is a fictitious debate between a non-Christian and a Christian. And the non-Christian brings charges against the Christian. These are false beliefs or these are smoke screens. These are different um, false accusations against Christians, and I just want to touch on them briefly as we, as we move forward. So if you look in 23, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can see the first charge is cannibalism. 
Can you think of why? John, the Lord's Supper. Yes, the Lord's Supper. And so Octavius, down in the middle of the page or towards the bottom of the page in 2-2, his response, and I'm just going to read what I've underlined and italicized. Note this answer. He says, it is not human flesh that we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. Keep in mind that if you have a child and it's a girl, but you, do, but you wanted a boy, or if the child is deformed, or if you simply don't want the child, what is done? You leave the child outside exposed to die. Now, he's, he's entering into another debate real quick because he's going to talk about this idea of cannibalism. But do you notice he says that's not human flesh that we eat? This statement around 166 AD or 198 that statement is an exact contradiction to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches called transubstantiation, which is to say that when you take what they call the Eucharist, the, the bread turns into the body of Christ and the blood, or rather the bread turns into the body of Christ and the wine turns into the blood literally. Here we see this so close to the closing of the New Testament, he's saying it's not human flesh that we eat. This is a this is an example of an early church refutation of a later false teaching added to certain segments of the church. But so notice that he talks about this guy Octavius answers this question about, okay, we don't eat people because we're being charged with cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. But then notice this ethic that comes out. He's just said, he's made a counter charge to this Roman, to this guy, uh, Caecilius. How do you say his name? That's how we're going to say his name right now. Caecilius. So when you, he talks about how they would kill children. And look what Octavius answers on the top of page 24. You are well aware how so many of the little ones that have been left out to die have been rescued by Christians and given a home. So it's, just the opposite of what you accuse us of, Caecilius. We don't consume human life, rather we protect and defend it. So he gives this counter-argument, as you can see, that not only do we not do what you say, but we are better with human life than you, than you uh, Romans are. The second charge is incest and orgies. So the, the language, so calling each other brother and sister... And then the Romans knew that Christians would gather for love feasts among brothers and sisters, hence the false charge. And so you can see his response there italicized and underlined. But I also want you to note what he says about how the church did church. We meet before sunrise because we are working people. We have jobs to go to. We do not always meet in secret but we have no temples or synagogues, so we use somebody's home which has enough room. We call one another brother and sister and pledge to love one another because that is what our Lord commanded us to do. We greet one another and bless one another with a holy kiss, not out of lust, but out of genuine love and concern for one another. The next charge is poor and lower class. So this is socioeconomic arrogance. He says, well, the church is full of slaves and lower class people and uneducated people, so 
something's wrong with your God and certainly is something's wrong with your religion. And he makes an argument that how um, at the end there, the last sentence, well, we get more wealth, we simply give more away. Wealth can be a great burden. It weighs you down with many cares and concerns. Traveling light has its advantages. And then he goes on to talk more. Talks about self-righteousness. And this is also interesting. So 5-2 here, it's top of page 25. So the charge is you're self-righteous. Have you ever heard of Christians branded as holier than thou? Well, listen to this uh, 166 answer. Talks about thanksgiving because we are forgiven, not because we are holy. And if we are forgiven, then we shall walk to lead, we shall seek to lead lives that are like Christ. Notice the humility. Now, understand that when he says not because we're holy, he's not talking about justification, your position in Christ. So when the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, because we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, truly God, truly man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, when we believe we are made positionally holy in Christ, we can't be more holy or more justified because we're in Jesus. But sanctification, living our days, day in and day out, following Jesus, stumbling, falling into sin or foolishness, putting off sin, putting on Jesus likeness, we are practically more and more holy. So when he says not because we're holy, he's countering this idea of self-righteousness. He's countering the idea of that they are, Christians are perfect and pagans aren't. He's acknowledging that Christians have the sin too, are uh, looking to live and lead lives like Christ. So he's talking about practical holiness, not positional holiness. Really important doctrinal distinction. Matter of fact, is there a question on that? Any questions or clarification? Ask for a friend about the difference between positional holiness and practical holiness. I'm glad that you understand it perfectly. But what I want you to see then is he's claiming, he's not claiming perfection. Next, the charge of atheism. So, isn't this a strange charge? So some of these we might get charged of today or, you know, we have, we have different species of charges against Christians, certainly the, the self-righteous one. But atheism, so he says in, in, in 6.2 there, yes, we are atheists, if you mean that we do not pray to or believe in all of the gods that we are expected to worship, but these are not gods. We worship the one true God, the Lord over all. So remember we talked about last time how a lot of the persecution of the early church was because the early church thought that because the Christians were not offering sacrifices and incense to all the various gods, those gods were angry and brought plagues and famines and different things upon the people. Well, he's saying, and so they got branded as, we got branded as atheists. Here you can see the cases, that's actually not the case. Uh, he claims to be, number seven, a new religion, and he just appeals to the the Bible, the oldness of it. And then number eight, lack of patriotism. You can read that one. And then a cause of God's anger. So that's something that you can spend some more time reading. But what I, the reason I'm showing it to you is, one, I want to expose you to, this is amazing. We're reading a, granted, a modern paraphrase of a document 
that is almost 2,000 years old. And it gives us a snapshot of what our brothers and sisters in the Lord oh so long ago fought against, defended the faith, and more. And so it's just an interesting way to approach it. And finally, before we move into the next heresy, bottom of page 26, we have a description of an early church service from Justin Martyr. And this is sometime, as you can see, written in his first apology, his first defense, somewhere around the year 155 to 157. So listen to how they did church, so to speak. On the day called Sunday, there is a meeting of all believers who live in the town or the country. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as time will permit. When the reader has finished, the president, i.e. the senior presiding elder, uses the word bishop, in a sermon, urges and invites the people to base their lives on those noble things. Then we all stand up and offer prayers. When our prayer is concluded, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president offers up prayers and thanksgiving to the best of his ability, and the people assent with an amen. Then follows the distribution of the things over which thanks had been offered, the bread, wine, and water, and the partaking of them by all. And the deacons take them to those who are absent. We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world, and on the same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. It was pretty amazing to think uh, about this description. There are other descriptions, right? He, so he doesn't, doesn't mention singing, though singing was a major part of it. But he doesn't mention it here. But he talks about reading the apostles or writings of the prophets would be Old Testament. So New Testament and Old Testament readings. And then the preacher gets up and preaches and, um, and so on. So it's an amazing thing that they did, or we do, nearly identically what they did. And that's why we have much of the structure of our, our Sundays. And they didn't use smoke machines and, and neither do we. And so before we move on, this is a quick snapshot, closing out what we started last week, this interlude before we get now to the year 220 and Sibelius. So any questions before we move on? Yes, Preston. Yeah, that's right. Uh, where was it found? I didn't put that information in there. And I also left the footnote absent. I made it all up. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I did not. Um, if I remember correctly, I think it's, I think the whole thing was Latin, not Greek, possibly a Latin translation of the Greek. And it's really long, and you can actually find free PDFs of it online at various places to read the whole thing. Uh, but it's, it's an unknown, so it's believed that this guy, um, Octavius, is the one who wrote it, probably. But it's, it has less, um, we, have, we know less about it than like Justin Martyr's writings or some other church fathers.
So not, not as much as known that I'm aware of. Correct. It's a fictional debate with the intent. So, so uh, one thing I mentioned last time is that during this period, the majority of the writing that was taking place were all defenses of the faith, either against heretics or defense of the faith so that Rome would stop persecuting them. So that's most of the writing. So, so Justin Martyr in his first apology or this guy who wrote this Octavius thing, was a defense of the faith, yeah. And as far as we know, it was a fictitious event that he made up to be able to communicate. Very good question. Well, let's take a big leap forward to the year 220. And the, the nature of the assaults on the gospel are getting more refined. They're getting more tricky. And so now we're going to deal with a heresy called modalism. And you can see there at the page, top of page 27. Sorry, need to go there. Top of page 27. What that's trying to say is the gospel divided by, excuse me, a different God. So we've seen that the Judaizers, for example, was the gospel plus works equals salvation. Well, modalism is going to give you a different God, but it's a very subtle form of Christian heresy. So let's, let's get into it. There's a guy named Sibelius. So as you know, it always comes down to some teacher. What we do know is that this guy, Sibelius, was excommunicated around the year 220. I'm not entirely sure where he was uh, ministering. But to be excommunicated means that he was in the church, teaching in the church, his teaching was spreading, and then the church or the bishops and elders evaluated his teaching and said, this is heresy, and so he was excommunicated. So he, he got a lot of traction. And his teaching, as a lot of heresies do, get named after the guy. So it's called Sabellianism or Sabellian modalism. So fancy words. So let's, let's think about what this means. So modalism teaches that God is not triune, not one God in three persons. Modalism teaches that it's one God who changes his mode or his mask. So he's only one person. Meaning, so they're Christians, we are Trinitarian monotheists. And Sibelius or modalists are modalist monotheists. Now, this might sound like some strange, ancient, weirdly named heresy, but it's alive and well today. Do any of you know uh, any of the names of the chief proponents or denominations? You can just shout them out. No, not um, Kind of Mormon-ish? Ish, that's interesting. Oh, I should think about that. New Age. How many of you have heard of T.D. Jakes? Oneness Pentecostalism. So there's whole denominations and Pentecostal circles that are modalist. So this is not like, uh, this is not time to fall asleep. There's going to be people that maybe are connected to you somewhere in your life if they're connected to 
oneness Pentecostalism or different denominations within that umbrella that embrace this heresy. So, so, so let's keep going. So according to Hippolytus, an early Christian defender against Sibelius, Sibelianism divided up the three roles into the actions of the one God at different times in history. In other words, Father, Son, and Spirit are merely adjectives describing how the one divine being acts and is perceived by believers. For example, in modalism, the one person of God, not the triune person of God, the one person of God changed his mode of expression or representation depending upon the situation. So usually it's he's God the Father in the Old Testament, he's Jesus in the Gospels, then he changes to be the Spirit in the epistles up to today. So Sibelius was charged as being a ditheist of worshiping two gods. Sibelianism was indirectly credited with creating a much bigger theological crisis in the following centuries. It's called Arianism, which we'll get to. And Arianism drew a sharp distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit, was in many ways the opposite of the Sibelian heresy. And it was rumored that Arius, who's the founder of Arianism, who had formerly been a Christian monk, developed overly strong views on the distinctions among the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, after hearing what he considered to be a Sibelian sermon in Egypt. Indeed, Arianism represented most of the criticisms that Sibelius leveled against the Trinitarians, including the division of God into multiple beings. And we'll get to him. That's going to be an, that quote will make more sense when we get to, to Arius. And Arianism is alive and well today in Jehovah's Witness. So this ancient stuff is just regurgitated with a new, new name on it. Rich. Yeah, we'll get, it, we'll get a mic to you in a second because we're recording. Thanks, Isaac. I just want to go back a minute. Um, can you tell, what is Pentecostalism, as you were referring to it earlier? Within the umbrella of Christianity, you have a charismatic movement, which believes in the full manifestation of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and Pentecostalism takes that a bunch of steps further and slain in the spirit, gold teeth, holy laughing, holy vomiting, things along those lines. And then within the realm of charismatic, just like there's a bunch of different Presbyterians and a bunch of different Baptists, there's a bunch of different Pentecostals. And within them, there's a heretical group called Oneness Pentecostals. Does that help? Yeah. Yes, thank you. So let's, this is kind of a review. This is bottom of page 27. So if we think about what's going on here, up to this point in early church history, assaults on the gospel were a bit more straightforward. That's kind of like a... This one gets a little bit more tricky when you begin to press into it. Whereas Sabellianism pushed the church to clarify 
and articulate what they believed, what we believed about the being and nature of God himself. So the Judaizers, right? We've seen them. They taught the gospel plus works equals salvation. For them, it was circumcision, and we talked about how there's movements like Church of Christ that teach you need to be baptized to be saved, and if you're not baptized, you're not saved, and that adds a work to salvation. And that's contrary to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Then we saw the Gnostics. These are the ones who said the gospel salvation is really secret knowledge, your feelings, about a phantom Jesus and being liberated from the flesh, then you'll be saved. And that was contrary to biblical revelation. You can go back and look at the notes. Last time we saw Marcion, and Marcion, his gospel was the gospel minus anything Jewish. Remember that guy? Contrary to Jesus' claim that the Old Testament God, Yahweh, was his beloved father, and it was Jesus' delight to do the Father's will, that Jesus was Jewish, as were the disciples, the apostles, and the first Christians. And the whole Bible unfolds the story of redemption, whereas Marcion reduced. Remember he had the New Testament, the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs joke? He had to be there. And then Montanus, it was, it was a good Bible joke. Montanus, he and uh, his two prophetesses, they were, well, your salvation is the gospel plus new superior revelation on top of the Bible. Then you'll be saved. Well, now we get into this guy, Sibelius. He is agreeing with what the Bible says, and he's agreeing, yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's disagreeing that it's one God in three persons, the Trinity, He's saying it's just God manifesting himself differently at different times as it suited the needs. So how do we answer that? How does the, how does the church answer that? That's, that could be kind of a, a tricky one. As is often the case, when someone claims something wrong about God, you know it's off. It smells bad. Something seems weird. You've never heard someone teach that before. Youth pastor never said that, and you haven't heard it preached. And the little bit of the Bible that you've read, you haven't read that, and it seems off, and it's the Holy Spirit in you putting off some alarms. That's what happens with this guy, Sibelius. So we're going to meet a guy named Tertullian. Now, there was lots of writing against modalism, lots of apologists writing against him, but Tertullian is very important in this story because now we're moving on to the nature of God himself. What is he? Is he one? Is he three and one and one and three? What is he? Well, the Orthodox party was represented by three major figures. Hippolytus, a failed candidate for Pope. Tertullian, was a North African lawyer and a convert to Christianity, and then Origen, a brilliant but eccentric with weird theology mixed with some good theology, philosopher from Egypt. And together these figures hammered out the basics of Trinitarian theology that later figures such as Athanasius improved upon. The Sabellians maintained that any scripture passage that suggests God is more than one 
must be interpreted metaphorically. So how, how would you refute that rhetorical question? Because that's a, that's a pretty sneaky, well, you just mis, it's just misinterpreting it. God's one, so it's just a metaphor that, you know, we're finite, he's infinite, and he's, you know, uh, omni-intelligent, and so he stoops down, condescends to us to communicate in ways that we understand. So it's just metaphors. So what do we do? Go back to the Bible. We go back to the Bible and read the scriptures. But Tertullian argued the metaphorical interpretation twisted the terms father and son, which are given to convey something real about God. And here's what Tertullian says. In order to be a husband, I must have a wife. I can never myself be my own wife. That's really simple, but this guy's like fairly smart. <laughs> in like manner, in order to be a father, I have a son, for I can never be a son to myself. In order to be a son, I have a father, it being impossible for me ever to be my own father. Furthermore, Tertullian showed that Christ showed his deity to the apostles not only by assuming the attributes of God of Israel, such as when he says, I am, but also by calling on God the Father as a separate witness. So quoting John 8, 18, Tertullian writes, I am one who am bearing witness of myself, and the Father is another who has sent me and bears witness of me. Now, if he were one, being at once both the Son and the Father, he certainly would not have quoted the sanction of the law, which requires the testimony, not the testimony of one, but of, of two. So he's being simply brilliant by exposing a complex argument. That's just a metaphor to then begin to think about it and say, well, I can't be my own son. I can't be my own dad. I can't be my own wife. Some people might think they are in this day and age, but back then they did not. <laughs> So more Tertullian, he's, he's a hero for us. So therefore, Tertullian developed terms that emphasized the unity of God as well as his distinctions. He proposed that we speak of the Godhead as one substance. It's, it's going to start getting crazy. So just hold on. To speak of God as one substance... There's the Latin. Consisting in three persons. One substance, three persons. Which Tertullian in the Greek put usia. And we'll, we'll come back to this and spend a lot more time digging into these crazy words. But they're very important. So Tertullian used the Greek word usia and then hypostasis. That way, God can be understood properly as one being, a single agent, but it can also be acknowledged that God is also three persons who interact with one another and work together. It is from Tertullian that we get the important Christian word Trinity, although the idea of the Trinity has been around long before and is 
taught in the Bible, or, or the idea of the Trinity. So here I want to pause and think about the Bible together. So Tertullian gives us that word Trinity. And one of the reasons that word is so important is think about what the heretic Sibelius is doing. He's quoting the same scriptures as Tertullian is. He's using the same Bible words, but with different definitions. So they have a different starting point. God's not three persons. God is one God in three persons. And so that requires a way of communication that is not talking past each other, not just semantic arguments. And so that's why the beauty, brilliance, and value of the word Trinity is so important to us because it helps us understand it's the hyperlink text that you click and it unfolds all the scriptures that show that there's only one God, but he's three persons, not three gods. So, so let's, let's look at some of these. So scripture, bottom of page 28, is undeniably, undeniable and clear. There is only one true living God. How about this? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20. Deuteronomy 4. To you it has been shown, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. That's pretty clear. But there's more. Deuteronomy 32. See, now that I, even I, am he, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 44. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then Mark 12, the scribe comes up to Jesus, greatest commandment, and Jesus replies, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John 17, this is, the, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So those are texts that show, and there's many more, that there is only one God. And yet, Scripture indicates that the one God is also three persons, but not three gods. Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. How many uh, beings and what the right word to use is to set up this question. How many people, characters are mentioned in this text? At the same time, Jesus, God's Holy Spirit descending like a dove and a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. If there's a son, there's a father. So right here, you have all three members of the Trinity 
present at once, and yet each member of the Trinity is, um, quote-unquote, doing something different. Jesus is getting baptized, the Father is speaking, and the Spirit is descending. Matthew 28 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Is that plural or singular? Singular. One name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was Trinitarian. The one name, and yet you have the three members of the Trinity. God does not share his glory with anyone else. There is no other God, and yet the Christian rite of baptism is speaking the singular name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, over those getting baptized, which we're going to see, Lord willing, this coming Sunday for people getting baptized. Praise the Lord. John 10, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, Jesus' enemies were pretty confident that Jesus claimed to be God. And, and, and more texts could be combined. But what we're doing is we're going back to the scriptures and we're putting, we're putting Bible verses in our hands. And one set of Bible verses is undeniably clear, only one God. And then another set of Bible verses that say that yet there's Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. I have here some charts for us. This is taken from the ESV Study Bible. Very, very helpful, helpful chart. This is, this is merely the work of God attributed to each member of the Trinity only in the Gospel of John. So this is only text from the Gospel of John. And we're going to read every single one of them. Just kidding. You can look these up on your own, and I, it would be edifying to do so. But what I do want to just read is that left column where it shows a work or an action of a member of the Trinity that's applied to each member. So, for example, Father, Son, and Spirit give life. Father, Son, and Spirit proclaim the future. Father, Son, and Spirit indwell believers. They teach, they testify to Jesus, they glorify Jesus. Okay, here's more. Actions that are common to just the Father and the Son. Glorify the Father, give the Spirit, send the Spirit. Actions common to the Son and Spirit. So now other two members of the Trinity. They're given by the Father, um, sent by the Father. They speak not from himself, speaks only what he hears. Convicts is to be received, discloses what belongs to God. So just if you pause there for a moment... That's just the Gospel of John. And you can see all of those verses you have in your pocket there, your packet rather, that show, wow, what do we conclude? Well, what we conclude is we agree with Tertullian, Trinity. There is only one God, but he reveals to himself in his word as three persons. Not three persons who change modes, because if Sabellian modalism was true, then when you have the baptism of Jesus, or we could also go the transfiguration, right? Transfiguration, Jesus is on the mountain. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Now we're gonna get, get exciting. I just wanna say you're welcome in advance. 
this is how you draw the Trinity. So if you notice here, I have it written down on the bottom. You look in the center of this diagram. So you have this box that says God, a triangle around God in a box. And then you have a circle around the triangle. So there is only one God. But if you note, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet, the Father is in and glorifies the Son and Spirit. The Son is in and glorifies the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is in and glorifies the Father and the Son. Yet there is only one God. And so we could put... Again, Bible verses like those charts that we just looked at that would um, show these truths from Scripture. That this is who God says he is. And as, as believers, we believe what the Word of God says. And, and so how do you fit this together? You become a Trinitarian. We go through a little bit more here and then I'll pause to take any questions or clarifications that you might have. So Tertullian continues, this is on page 33, I confess that I call God and his word, the father and his son, two. For the root and the tree are distinctly two things, yet cor cor how do you say that word? Yeah. You need to put another quarter in the machine and stop warping. The fountain and the river are also two forms, but indivisible. So likewise, the sun and the ray are two forms, but coherent ones. Everything which proceeds from something else must needs be second to that from which it proceeds without being on that account separated. Where, however, there is a second, there must be two, where there is a third, there must be three. Now the spirit indeed is a third from God and the son, just as the fruit of the tree is the third from the root. Even if this is so, how come we don't speak of a divine triad? Should we refer to God as the three persons of the Trinity as them instead of him? Tertullian argued that when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, he was emphasizing the idea of substance or divine essence. That allows us to refer to God as being a single being. The phrase meant more than mere unity of purpose, and that two separate beings would have, even if it also meant less than the complete identification of the Father with the Son, that Sibelius had suggested. Instead, Christ was saying that he and the Father are one being and that the idea that God is a single being came first. So to talk to Christ, for example, is to talk to all the members of the Trinity at once. The Sabellian modalist controversy spurred the church to carefully, clearly, and biblically answer the charge that God is not three in one, 
but the one who changes modes. The controversy gave rise to the need to use non-biblical language and to coin a non-biblical term, Trinity, to counter the error. This was due to the fact that both sides were quoting scripture. The defenders of orthodoxy, especially Tertullian, were not inventing or creating new doctrine. That's important. They were simply explaining and defending what has always been contained in scripture against bad readings of scripture leading to false teaching. Really want to hammer that point. Because some of the charges that you can hear from other Christian cults or uh, well-meaning but uninformed believers is that the early church was just making stuff up. And they were inventing new doctrines. And so what we need to see over and over again is what the early church did was they preserved what the church already believed. So you go way back, I guess not way back relative to this, go back 50 years to this moment or so, 70 years, to back to the Apostles' Creed, and we saw that even implied there the three, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Spirit. So the Bible teaches Trinitarianism, and so we should... Uh, Guard that. Truth for today. So again, modalism is still around both intentionally and unintentionally. So unintentionally, illustrations that describe the Trinity as being like water, ice, and steam come close to modalist modes of existence. It's really hard to describe the Trinity. How many of you have seen that? What's that YouTube with the Irish guys arguing? Okay, yeah, where they go through and they just basically blast humorously all the ways that we tried to describe the Trinity as just being different heresies. Well, why would this be modalism? Because water, ice, and steam aren't that at the same time. Though I suppose we can get into physics and probably prove that they are to a certain degree. But for our, my simple mind, it's one or the other. Same thing with an egg, shell, the white part in the, the middle. It's one egg, but it's not all this, I mean, so anyways. <laughs> you just have to be careful with it. Just If you're going to use an illustration of the Trinity and you're not going to draw that awesome picture, then just qualify it and say, this, there's, there's errors in here, but I just want to give you a basic idea. But there are intentional. So for example, here's their names. Let's name them. Intentionally, the United Pentecostal Church, Oneness Pentecostal Churches, Apostolic Pentecostalism, and One God Pentecostalism all embrace the heresy of modalism. And so T.D. Jakes, who is no longer alive, was a leading figure, right? So when you get uh, the Christian book uh, magazine, you guys, uh, if, you, if you look at like leading books, top 10 books, T.D. Jakes, isn't he like woman thou art loosed? Don't you guys read Heretics? <laughs> when there used to be things called Christian bookstores, you could go and you could look at or go to Barnes in the mall and, and go to the Christian section and see what books are highlighted and why those ones are facing out. It's because they sell the most and you'll find that a lot of them are heretical in nature. So why is this important? Well, to read what we, the very first class, 
fake Jesuses can't save and neither can false gospels. And so that means that when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are confessing not just that he's the king, but he is also one in substance with the father, Yahweh from the Old Testament, Adonai, the king, the Lord. The Trinity is essential for salvation. So when baptism calls for immersion in the name of the Trinity, that indicates that the one being baptized knows and believes and confesses. So when, when Scott is going to go baptize someone on Sunday and he says, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the person goes, wait a second, what? I don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's going to have to stop the baptism. That's why we baptize in the name. We declare the Trinity over a person, which necessarily means I believe in the Trinity. This is not to say that you need to be able to pronounce substantia and usia and hypostases like we just looked at, though now you can. You don't have to have a PhD in Trinitarian studies to understand this because a PhD in Trinitarian studies is trying to understand God and they're trying. But this is to say that without confessing the Trinity, there's no salvation as that's a different God of a different gospel. This side of the cross, this side of the resurrected and ascended Jesus, this side of a closed canon of scripture, this side of the spirit being poured out, we must confess the Trinity. So there are churches in this town that claim to be Trinitarian, but say that baptism is necessary for salvation. There are churches that I'm not aware of in this town, but we can draw the map long enough to get to some Pentecostal species that we saw above, and they're going to say that it's modalism. So it, it, it matters. It, it really matters. And this has bearing on how we do missions and missionaries we support, what type of gospel they're proclaiming, easy believism, and if someone's being converted, is someone being converted if they can't confess the Trinity? If the gospel is going forth in Muslim cult cultures, and it's offense to say that Jesus is the Son of God, among other things, so they don't preach that, are we actually creating converts? We're creating converts, but to what religion? Biblical Christianity? So we, we have to be careful. And so I remember I tried to track it down. I couldn't find the article. I liked how it was an article by D.A. Carson. And about a decade ago, there was this thing called the Elephant Room. Any of you, who, how many of you were exposed to it? Just me and Joey. Okay, three of us. Me, Joey, John, and, okay, great, all of us. The Elephant Room was a debate that had T.D. Jakes in it and whatnot. And there was a whole bunch of controversy around it because they were trying to, it's Matt Chandler, T.D. Jakes, and James McDonald out of ministry. And they were um, trying to see if they agreed basically. D.A. Carson wrote an interesting piece on it, and he said, you may not be able to understand the inner workings of what the Bible says about the Trinity, but a child can confess the Trinity and be saved. But if somebody is, claims to be a Christian, but then denies the Trinity, it shows they're actually not a Christian. So it's necessary for conversion, necessary for belief.
The Trinity is beyond our full comprehension, as there is none like God. Yet we can understand in some sense that God is who he indicates he is. One in three, three in one. A person may be confused by the doctrine of the Trinity, but we have to confess it. And then let's get a little bit philosophical, and then we can take some questions. The doctrine of the Trinity against modalism safeguards the glorious truth that God is love. I heard this argument, I think, first from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if it's original to him. But God says that he is love in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16. And the argument goes like this. Only a Trinitarian monotheist can truly claim that God is love within himself in the essence of his being from all eternity. Islam can't confess that. Current Judaism can't confess that. Modalism can't confess that. The example, how is that so? Love requires an object, a lover and a beloved. If God were monadic, so only one person, not three, there would not be an other to love. And therefore, conceivably, he could love himself, but he would, in some strange, narcissistic way, idolize himself. But because God's triune, three in one, the Father is not the Spirit and the Son and so on, that means that from all time, so to speak, the Father has always loved the Son and the Spirit. That the Trinity is other-oriented within himself. So the Father loves Son and Spirit, Son loves Spirit and Father, Spirit loves Father and Son. So there's an other-orientedness, there's a lover and a beloved, there's an object of love, which means then the doctrine of the Trinity safeguards our doctrine of creation. What do I mean? So any notion that God created because of some deficiency, he was lonely, he needed angels to worship him and he needed people to worship him, that he was... He lacked love within himself. Creation does not give God something he is lacking. He does, nor does creation improve upon God's glory. Creation is the overflow of God's love for God. Creation is gifted by God to bring it into the enjoyment of God's enjoyment of God. That's what we get. We exist not because God needs you, but because God delighted to create image bearers to enjoy his love of himself and his love for us and our love for him. So that is modalism. Questions, clarifications. So one of the thoughts I had as I was listening was when you're believing in modalism, do they specifically, like, let's just say they want to pray, do they say, Father, for one prayer, and Jesus, I'm going to pray to you a different way. Spirit, do I pray to you a different way? Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And then what do we do? You know, sometimes I have thought this, like, should I address the Spirit when I'm praying? Should I just say Jesus? Do I say God? The Father, like in our prayers, like how do we? Such a good question. I don't know. It just kind of came up. Yeah. 
So I was going to say, listen to a T.D. Jakes sermon, but don't, so we can find out how he prays. I'm sure they just say Jesus or something like that uh, with, based on the Pentecostalism. So what a current-day modalist would pray, that's a great question. I don't, I, I don't know how to answer that. But it's a really good question to ask, how do we pray? What we should not do is get uptight and weird about our prayers and stress out about them. So if our fundamental posture is knowing that God is one and three, three and one, that pleases the Lord. We know that the vast majority of the prayers we see in the Bible are to the Father. And certainly Jesus prayed to the Father. What we see in the book of Acts, so Stephen is, is being killed with rocks. And what's, what is Stephen's final words? Anybody remember? And then what do you say after that? Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he prays to Jesus. Uh, how does the Bible end? Amen, come Lord Jesus. So there's two prayers in the Bible addressed to Christ. I am not, I can't think of any, I don't think there are any, I'm not aware of, please correct me if I'm wrong, of any prayers to the Spirit. We know Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Spirit uh, in, in Acts, early Acts, which would imply maybe, some, maybe you could get to some argument of praying for the Spirit, to, to the Spirit. My understanding is that we can absolutely address all three members of the Trinity. So, you know, when we, when we pray in Jesus' name, amen, that's not like a signature you put on there so that God forget, so that God doesn't forget and like, oh, you didn't say in Jesus' name, rejected prayer. Like, it's, it's to imply what the book of Ephesians says about how, how we are in Christ. So we should think more of that, I am in union with Christ and because of his imputed righteousness, I boldly approach the throne of grace for, for help in time of need. So if you listen to most of my prayers, I do try on a Sunday morning to self-consciously pray Trinitarianly, but not legalistically, if that, if that makes sense. I don't think we should get too wooden. Um, so hopefully that kind of puts some boundaries on it. That was an excellent question. Yeah. Um, I suppose a good question to ask would be, uh, you argued that uh, one of the reasons that we were created was, of course, for God to be able to see himself in us and to love that. To what degree, if any, does God love our individuality that's in some aspect or essence separate from him? I think our individu individuality is what glorifies him. So think about Psalm 139. We are... God superintends, just as he created Adam and then created Eve, he actually creates each one of us, but not out of dirt or a rib, but in our mother's womb. And so we're each fearfully and wonderfully made. So he superintends that process, which is actually pretty amazing to think about. Um, and then in that sense, we are who we are because he's made us us individually. So there's a very individualistic aspect of it. And so that when we are glorified and in glory on the new heavens and new earth, you're still going to be you. You're going to be recognizable. You'll probably have a, well, Revelation says we get a new name, but you'll still have your old name probably. And so we're going to be a lot more like us now with qualifications, but you'll still be you. We're not going to be absorbed into some unidentified nothingness.
Good question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, going back to prayer, and this may be a misinterpretation on my part, but isn't one of the roles of the Spirit to help us pray? Uh, Romans 8, 100%. Yeah. So he helps us pray. And so we can say, oh, Spirit, please help me pray right now because I don't know what to pray. It's really, really good. Preston. So I have a question going back to Montana's. Has that become a, does that have a name these days? Like, I mean, because I'm wondering, like, you would, you, you could place Mormonism in there, but I've never heard the term Montanaism. Yeah. <laughs> All those people from Montana. I know. They're <laughs> the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that is an unintentional heresy that still is alive and well today. You see it especially in charismatic circles in which I got saved with the Jesus told me followed by something else. Now, listen, some of you know who Steve Cole is. He and I were having a conversation, and we both, I have two, he has one, situations in our life where we knew that we knew that we knew that God was, was leading us. And actually, for me, one of them was, was answering the call to this church. And actually, for Steve, I was answering his call to this church, too. He said that when he and Marla were driving back to California, um, they, they both knew. So you can't argue with that. It's very subjective. So I think the spirit, he still moves and he still directs our steps. He's still active. But what tends to happen at a popular level is, um, well, God told me this and God told me that. And someone becomes a functional prophet where they say something stupid or unbiblical or harmful to someone else. And you can't argue with them. And I think I mentioned a time before I was... Mediating, mediating this dispute between these two women, and one of them just kept saying over and over again, well, God told me this about this woman and this about that woman, and just slander, slander, slander. And I stopped her after 45 minutes and said, can you give me any Bible or any truth to what you're saying besides just simply judging, sinfully judging her motives? And she said no. So I think at a popular level that happens. Certainly in charismatic circles, the Nard movement, New, New Apostolic Reformation, revival of fivefold ministry that believes that apostles and prophets are still active today. Those are people who are saying, God told me and my new superior revelation, you should listen to me more than the Bible. So uh, uh, Bill Johnson at Bethel would be the leading figure of that movement and, and some others. But So it's not a formally named but you see that spirit at work. Uh, certainly in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you say God told you, you're a heretic and you're a Montan- you're from Montana. <laughs> Go back to Montana. I'm not saying that, but I'm just I'm cautioning that at a popular level, just Christianese phrases uh, um, uh, get into our, our lingo. You know, things like, I just want to love on you. You ever heard that one? Some of you, right? So that's weird. That's weird. It's weird. I don't know. And it could be misunderstood, you know, these days. So anyways, it's a good question, Preston. 
Any other questions? Yes. Richard, right behind you. Going back to the prayer and, and stuff, my own feeling isn't when we invite the Lord into our heart and the Holy Spirit within us, he already knows what our prayer will be and what our needs are. And I feel like he's, being part of the Trinity, knows how to communicate to the three persons in what our heart is and what our needs are. So I, I feel like sometimes we can't put things into words and just say, this is how we pray. I think when we ask the Lord into our heart and the Holy Spirit's guiding us, I think he knows before we even speak what, what we're praying for. And he does. That's a, that's a great observation. Great. I mean, that, that's what I meant by us not getting stressed out about it. I, I, in my personal prayer life, I just say Lord a lot. And I know that when I say that, I'm just in my mind addressing the three members of the one God and three persons. And, um, and then one, there's a, there's a really good book called On Communion with God. And it is a, it's been edited by Justin Taylor and another guy. And it is a republication of John Owen, a Puritan. And it's hard to read but it's easier to read than what John Owen wrote. So it's on communion with God, and it's a whole book where he just goes through, God made us for relationship with him, communion, fellowship with him, and so we need to have a that communion with him, and our communion with Jesus, I don't think this is heretical, is gonna be a little bit different than our communion with the Father and the Son because Jesus is the one who is the last Adam who lived, died, and rose in my place, not the Spirit of the Father. Those two members of the Trinity didn't die on the cross. Um, and because Jesus is incarnate, there's that element where he's united humanity to himself. And so you can have fellowship uniquely with each member of the Spirit. So wait, or the, the, the Trinity. So if you think about how each member of the Trinity works and operates and what each of their roles are, in the Bible, you could pray with knowledge, pray the Bible back to God in the way that he reveals himself into his, in his word. Very good question. Yes. Um, I am wondering if you could clarify the two sentences at the end of point three, where it says creation is the overflow of God's love for God, and creation is gifted by God to bring the enjoyment of God's enjoyment of God. It just sounds a bit like a tongue twister. Could you clarify it a bit? That is poetry. <laughs> you can spend time unraveling that. I was channeling John Piper. Creation is gifted by God to bring it. So when I say it, I'm talking about all creation into the enjoyment of God's enjoyment of God. Meaning we are created to be brought into God's love for God. And that the Father's love for the Son would be in us. And the Son's love for the Father would be in us. We'll read Jesus' prayer in John 17. So we would participate in the Trinity's love for the Trinity. Olivia? No, you're just hanging out like that, okay? Any, any other questions or comments? Great questions, you guys. John. 
I believe one time you said, um, no, I'm not like, I think it came from you, your mouth during a sermon, but you said, um, Christ died on the cross for God more than he did for us. Like first and foremost, foremost for like showing that love to God. Yes. He did. Is it John 17? Oh, it's going to take me forever. Yes, I said that because I was quoting the Bible. <laughs> and it's in the upper room discourse. It might be John 15. could be John 17. But it's just, oh, here. Everybody open to John if you have a Bible or scroll there with your scroll. John 14, 31. But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That verse, in my estimation, is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, because almost all the verses in the New Testament talk about Christ going to the cross as our substitute on our behalf for us, for his love for us. But here, underneath all around and above Jesus' love for us, here we see the cross is also showing Jesus' love for the Father. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know I love the Father. Thanks for thinking of that. Ready for some more heresy? We're going we're gonna to slow way down here. We're also making a, a big jump forward. So what I want to do here is I want to establish just some... Does anybody not have the notes, excuse me, from page 35 on? Raise them high. Amy's got some. She's going to bring them to you. Thank you so much, Amy. So Arianism... Just so you know, just like modalism is modern day, one is Pentecostals, well, Arianism is modern day Jehovah's Witness, who canvass my neighborhood and maybe canvass your neighborhood. To give you some context, we've looked at a lot of different heretics. We looked at two of the church's response responses. We saw... Um, the Apostles' Creed in response to, to the Judaizers and to Gnosticism. We saw the Muratorian Canon in response to Marcion and the Mon Montanus. Okay, here we're advancing forward. This guy, Arius, and he lived from 256 to 336. This moment... There is so much church history on this. Is really, church history begins to explode here with, with so much information. Because it's this moment that's ultimately going to lead us to the Nicene Creed. And so we're going to take some time because there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. 
but we're making a big jump, right? So we, we're making about a 50-year jump or about a 100-year jump um, as we go now to Arian or Arius. And so I want to talk about just historical backdrop. So we're, we're going to get to Arius, but I want to give you a, a tour, so to speak, of the world at this point, roughly from 250 to 312. So about this 62-year period. We're going to talk about persecution. In 250, Emperor Decius organized the first universal persecution of Christians. Up to this point, it was pocketed, but this is the first time it's universal. Decius believed that the church was a deadly threat to the empire's unity and stability. Christians had made themselves very unpopular in the year 247 by refusing to join the pagan festivities celebrating the 1,000th anniversary of the founding of Rome. Then starting in the year 248, a series of invasions by northern Germanic tribes called Goths shook the empire. Origen noted that anti-Christian feeling was on the rise everywhere. Decius shared this feeling. He blamed the Christians for the empire's calamities. The gods were angry because the church was drawing away so many people from worshiping the gods. So Decius decided that he must eliminate the Christian church like some cancerous growth from the body of the empire. He began by targeting church leaders. The authorities executed the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Cyprian of Carthage escaped only by going into hiding. Then Decius ordered that all inhabitants of the empire must offer sacrifices to the gods and then obtain official certifications stating that they had done so. Christians who refused, such as Origen, were imprisoned and tortured. Many died. However, large numbers of Christians gave in and either offered sacrifice to the gods or purchased a fake certificate by bribing magistrates. Decius died one year later in 251 while fighting the Goths. So I want you to think about that. Christianity is outlawed. Bishops, pastors, and elders are rounded up and killed. And then all of you, all of us, are required to go and show up at City Hall. And there is an idol of Zeus or an idol of the emperor. And we're to make an offering to it, to burn incense to it. And declare Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And if you did that, you got the certificate. Porter, do you remember what the certificate was called? Do you remember what the name of the certificate was called? It had a name. It was fancy. So you had your vaccine passport. <laughs> Excuse me. You had your certificate. <laughs> you had your certificate. But what would you do? And this is, this is, this is a challenging question. And so some Christians, many ran for their lives. They headed for the hills. They dug caves and rocks and lived in them. Um, some, as it says here, gave in and they offer the sacrifice to the gods or others work the system, they worked it out ethically of having fake certificates, which is an interesting thing to, to think about. 
those who were killed in this 250 persecution were called martyrs. It's really where this word begins to take shape in church history, this massive execution. And that is they are witnesses. Deasius, however, was not out to make heroes. He wanted to discredit Christianity. So many Christians were tortured until they denied Christ by saying Caesar is Lord. If a Christian endured the persecution without denying Christ, the church called him a confessor. If a believer under torture did what the Romans demanded, he was classed as lapsed or lapsy in Latin, fallen ones. When the persecution ended, the question arose in the church of readmission. And it almost, it, it split churches and it put churches in fighting with each other. Because what do you do with someone who said, Caesar is Lord, offers the incense? Maybe even said, there are Christians hiding in that house. And then now the persecution is done. They want to come back to the church. Do we open the doors? How do you, how do you thread that needle? Many believers were guilty of apostasy, sometimes as many as three quarters of a congregation. And without, spiritual adequ without adequate spiritual preparation, they had bowed to imperial pressure. Like Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, they had denied their Lord and they now wept bitterly. The implications of their exclusion from church were now clearer than ever. So this guy, Bishop Cyprian of Carthage, said flatly, outside the church, there is no salvation. Many agreed with him. Thus, a clamor arose for readmission, because if he's teaching, if you're outside the church, you can't be saved, and they had lapsed, and they need to come back in, again, what do you do? Wasn't this the sin against the Holy Spirit for which there was no forgiveness? What evil, um, what evil could be worse than to deny from fear or pain the only way to salvation? If this is pardoned, anything can be pardoned. So now a theological dispute is going to break out. The awe and admiration of the martyrs was enormous. Martyrdom, the, blood, the baptism of blood, represented the utmost glory that a Christian could attain. Now think about this. The names of the martyrs were carefully kept in the records of the churches and their birthdays into eternal life are remembered by annual celebrations at their tombs. So, so think about if this happened among us. And think about one, someone in our congregation dies for Jesus. Th that's going to rock our world. It's going to shake our faith. And it's going to cause us to praise God with tears. And so it would seem to make sense that we don't want to forget what this beloved saint did. And so every year we have it written down, yet this is the year that Bill stood his ground and died for Jesus. So they would have birthdays. This practice at different churches is actually from this, you start getting the idea of Catholic saints. Sainthood gets born from this, and you'll see why. In Carthage, North Africa, Tunisia, 
Cyprian confronted those who held the confessors by their unusual courage had achieved a special power of God. Well, they were able to go to the lions. They were able to be beheaded, whatever it was. They had a special power from God, they believed. The Holy Spirit had ordained them extraordinarily so that they had power to absolve men of their sins. That's quite a leap because it's, Jesus is the only man who can absolve men's sins. Here's what the thinking was. But this is, listen to this thinking. It was believed that they could cover with their merits the demerits of those who had lapsed. So the Holy Spirit gives this guy, Bill, all this power to die, but I lapse and deny the faith, but then the persecution ends and I want to come back in. Well, because Bill's in heaven with so much special holiness, somehow they're saying that his merit can balance out my demerits and I can come back into the church. This was the logic of their thinking of how do we deal with, practically speaking, people who deny Jesus? That's a really important question to wrestle with. So many urged Cyprian to announce a blanket pardon. Your sins are covered because of the merits of the saints who died during the persecutions. He declined, however, in favor of a system of readmission based on the degrees of the seriousness of sins. Leniency could be, he said, should be extended to those who had sacrificed, should be extended to those who had sacrificed only after excruciating torture. And they could plead, well, uh, their bodies, not their spirits, gave way. Those, however, who had gone willingly to make sacrifices must receive the severest punishment. So his argument won general approval. So to deal with these degrees of guilt, the church created a system of penance to be readmitted into the church because of those who had lapsed, who had either offered the sacrifice, said Caesar is Lord. And so what was this? Only after varied periods of sorrow for sin, i.e. penance, were the sinners allowed to return to the Lord's Supper. And, and so I, 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 I don't know if it was, I think because these guys were bishops over multiple churches, they probably had some chart and graph system that they used to determine, okay, you were tortured this much and for this long, therefore this much penance, but you folded like, uh, like a leaf in the wind and so you have the most penance. And the most prominent voice for the traditional strict policy came from Rome. In Rome, a presbyter, an elder, not as we understand it, highly respected theologian Novatian argued that the church had no power to grant forgiveness to those guilty of murder, adultery, and apostasy. It could only, the church, it, could only intercede for God's mercy at the last judgment. So he's saying, you guys are nuts. The Bible doesn't teach this. But which doctrine sounded nicer? Some ears got itched, and Novatian met with stiff opposition of another presbyter named Cornelius, who held that the bishop could forgive even grave sins. 
and the church was split over the matter. But that guy Cornelius' view was popular enough to get him elected bishop of Rome by a majority, and that's what he began to teach. So you have this treasury of merit from the saints, and then now you have Cornelius in Rome, a bishop. Remember, so he's not the, he, this, the, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't exist yet. So he has, he's not the pope as we think of the pope today. But can you see now where these doctrines are forming? And note, it's all coming out of a severe persecution in the church asking, what do we do with people who deny Jesus? Can they not be saved? Can they be saved? But these guys didn't read their Bibles very well. Fast forward, Emperor Valerian renewed persecution, and that is the end of class. <laughs> it's called a crash landing. It's 7.45. I want to let you guys go. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm willing, uh, happy to stay and answer any questions that you guys may have. We're going to pick up uh, just right where we left off, uh, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray. Father, there's, there is, there's so much to see, and we're seeing so little in the history of the church. So many details, people, places, people just like us, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, grandparents, church, churchmen, churchwomen, wanting to faithfully get up in the morning, serve you in their trades, gather on Sundays to worship you, Jesus, and we see over and over again that from within the church and outside the church, opposition arises to pollute or pervert or sideline the gospel. And Lord, we stand on many tall shoulders, but we also confess that we need your grace collectively. Just thinking about how you held the whole church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, responsible for the doctrine of their church, not just the pastor elders, but the whole church. And so, Lord, we want to be mindful and careful guardians that should you delay in returning, that we are being the church, doing the church, building the church, guarding doctrine on behalf of our friends and family who will come from us for generations to come until you return. So, Lord, let us be found faithful let us understand the past so we can understand the present and guard the future. Thank you for this time you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name and everyone said, amen. All right, if you've got any questions, raise your hands. Feel free to leave if you need to. Um, if you want to stay and have a conversation, if you could take it to the hallway. We're, I think we're, if we're still, are we still recording, Johnny? Yeah, okay, so just to keep the sound pure in here would be great. Yeah, go ahead. Um, under... The first point, I guess. Um, what page are you on? Uh, 20, or sorry, 35. Okay. Uh, when you talked about how some Christians uh, would, what did you say? Uh, work the system and ethically get a fake certificate. Mm. Um, I want, could you kind of clarify your interpretation or understanding of what ethically means? Uh, when, because I, I would understand that bribery is a sin but then also lying to the government, which is established by God, would then be a further sin to say, oh yeah, I have my uh, certificate of, of sacrifice or whatever. So wouldn't that be then, well, I guess it's like culturally ethical, <laughs> I suppose, but it's a sin. And so how, could you just clarify your understanding? I'm going to 
answer that by not saying that I'm giving a definitive position of myself and certainly not the position of this church. We know in the Bible quite a few places where what we might knee-jerk say is a lie is blessed by God. The Egyptian midwives lying to Pharaoh because they didn't kill the children and God blessed them. Fast forward to the book of Acts. Um, you know, whether it's right for us to obey God or man, you decide, but we're going to keep preaching Jesus, which is against the law. So there, one is preserving the life of babies. Another one, you have the preservation of the gospel. Go to Daniel. Daniel refused the edict of the king so that he could pray. So there, those are places where, um, now Daniel wasn't, he was breaking the law. He wasn't necessarily lying because he was doing it in private, but we could say that there are, the midwives were lying and, um, so the question is, ethically, this, the, the question comes up, the truth belongs to whom the truth is due. And so if, or another way to say this is an unjust law is no law. And so you kind of get into some political theory here, but if the role of a government is to protect and promote life, not be a tyrant, then when that authority uh, becomes a tyrant, they are no longer operating in the sphere that God has given them because we know from Romans 13 that all governments exist as God's deacon to do his service. So when they don't do his service, then the question becomes, is there ever a time where actually lying is actually not sinful lying? It's a different category of, um, of well, the Hebrew midwives or something like that. So when, when vaccine passports were starting to come out, there it was mentioned, I think in a few places, the idea of, well, what about false vaccine passports? If I can't feed my family, and it's an unjust law uh, that causes more harm than good, then um, is it actually ethical to, is it morally right to disobey it, to protect the lives of others? So that was just, so that's what I'm saying, that's, that's the ethical question that's coming up. So. So bribery, getting into those things, um, yeah, there's, just some, there's some ethical twists and turns in that, but I think that's a very provocative idea that we need to think more about should things like that arise again. And I don't think, that's a, I don't think it's a coward's way out of something. It, it might be the right way. So there's just some information for you. Yeah, very good question. Yeah. Ask, ask a question. Yeah, Isaac. Um, on the churches that split over the question of how to receive those who lapsed, the lapsed Christians, uh, I'm wondering if, in the quotes that you made, it didn't seem like there were references to repentance and faith as, like, is there evidence of repentance in this person's life? Was, I, I think I have two questions. Was there any conversation along those lines at that time that you know of? And... I'm wondering what you think would have been an appropriate response. Like, how, how should those churches? Well, so to your first question, you know, I am not aware, but I'm not well-read enough to know if they're actually having those conversations. Do we see fruit in keeping with repentance? Um, I think it's a very, very interesting appeal to appeal to Peter, who denied Christ in front of Christ, and then Jesus restores him. Um, 
blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is refusing to believe the gospel. So could someone, I mean, it really, it's a, it becomes like a case-by-case -case scenario, and then you have to have all these conversations and then bear fruit and keeping repentance without creating a system of penance. I mean, how, so it's tricky. I'm not entirely, I mean, it's a really important question because, you, you know, what, in 10 years, what if we face persecution and imprisonment and things along those lines? And what if some people do rat out other Christians or, you know, things al along those lines? I don't know. And so... I think it's important for us to think about to be prepared for it. I don't think that what they did is right. I'll say that. So starting starting with those those ways. But um, Peter's a good example. But I don't think Peter can blanketly be applied to every single person who lapsed. Because some people... Um, so at that point, it wasn't easy to be a Christian. There was So there was really, wasn't nominal Christianity per se. Conceivably, if you were raised in a Christian home... But it was so difficult to be a Christian that it meant something. It cost you something. And, um, and so this is before the church was, was legal. So, yeah, there's just a lot of rabbit holes that go down there. So I, I'm not sure. It's a really good question. When you figure it out, though, let me know what to do. Yes. Is this the beginning of, I know Catholicism wasn't, but is this the beginning of confession and how the priests meet out? Absolutely. It would be, here's the seed form. And so all these doctrines and so different, do, they, they, go, they go through um, changes along the way. They expand and things along those lines, especially in Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So this certainly looks like the seed of that, especially since it's the guy living in Rome. Good question. Oh, is there anything else? Any other questions, comments, observations? Yeah, Porter. Along similar lines with this idea of kind of the early origins of possible sainthood uh, with the martyrs, uh, there was one theory I've heard, and I don't know if you've ever read this, interested in your thoughts, that uh, we've talked about syncretism last week, the idea of mixing uh, traditions and practices with the Christian faith. Uh, have you heard of the theory of to make Christianity more acceptable, there was the idea of taking different gods and deities of these religions and then kind of making them into saints instead? I don't know if, if that is something or you know, I, so that's interesting. I've never heard that, but I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Um, what we will see, for example, the idea of, we've already talked about Gnosticism, which was alive and well and no big deal within just Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture. And then we're going to see um, with, when we get into Arius' teaching, and then even with modalism a little bit, that these, one of the things that is attractive about these various heresies is they're a little bit more easy to believe in that day and age with that Greco-Roman population that had the pantheon of gods. So um, we've talked about Origen a little bit. And Origen is a really mixed figure. He's a huge figure in church history. And there's really good things about him and there's bad things about him. And one of the things that he taught Origen and then his disciples developed it was that, um, 
yeah, the Father and the Son are one, but Jesus is a little bit less divine. He's like 80% divine, 80% 80 divine power compared to God. You know, I'm making that number up. But but it was part of it was it was more palatable to the Greco-Roman culture. So so I think it's very plausible that would be the case, that the idea of saintheoods, they already believed in all the pantheon of gods. Why not have all these people who are in the heavens looking down on me? It makes, it's plausible. Yeah. Imagine. Just a comment add, adding on to that. I learned in my um, art history class that Jesus in like old art was often depicted in the same ways that uh, Apollo was depicted, just so people would draw those correlations because they had some, like, they were associated with some of the similar characteristics. Like Apollo was associated with being a shepherd. So, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Anything else? Olivia, you don't have any questions? Okay. You always have good ones. So do all of you. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let me pray one more time. Lord, we love you. Thanks for this time. Bless us now uh, with your favor as we go to live for you, humbly serve you by serving others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thanks, everybody. Good job tonight.